the things that you choose to cut, those decisions may be some of the most powerful decisions you make, especially when you're a small company and you have limited resources. If you can only do so many things well, are you making the right bets around where you put your time and where you put your focus? Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. We are here with Bailey Richardson, a partner at People and Company, the co-author of Get Together, How to Build a Community with Your People, and with is in italics, which I think is an important point that we are going to get into in community building. Um, Bailey and I actually worked together at Instagram in the early days. Um, the early yeah, days I mean, for me. We worked she... together. You were, you were like semi boss land for me, you know. Here sort I am on your podcast. You were semi, yeah, sort of. I think I think you were kind of my boss. That was the. Uh, <laughs> Who knows? That was the. Um, yeah. So Bailey was. What you were probably employee number ten or eleven or something like that at Instagram. Yeah, you know. It, I, I somewhere between like eight and ten. We had okay. a, a little cluster of people all join at the same time, and I have to say, one thing I did appreciate was there was kind of a culture of like not not being like really precise about everyone knowing yeah. their employee numbers, and yes. <laughs> so I don't actually know. Um, That's but awesome. yeah, but a lot of people want to know that, so I'm like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, pick one. <laughs> it's one of those. <laughs> so Bailey was at Instagram. We're going to talk about that with with me. Um, she's been at IDEO. At Pop Up Magazine, and now obviously working with people and company, and on the athletic side. So you were the captain of the field hockey team at Stanford. Yes, you are a pretty wow. badass surfer, and you you uh, do some community organizing through your sports. I re- I've seen your your <laughs> journey through basketball oh, yeah. um, get-togethers, which is is fun to uh, to spectate from the outside. So. Um, so welcome to the common threads. We're going to have fun. <laughs> I'm stoked. I'm really stoked. I think honestly, if I had a job that was all community building for sports or physical activity, uh, that would be my ideal situation. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I could in, infinitely work on that for sure. So yeah. I'm stoked to be here. That's awesome. Um, so when we met, you were, um, it's funny because there's some famous photos from Instagram's first day at Yes. At Facebook, you thought you were joining this little startup in San Francisco, and before you know it, you're you're in a garage door little office with a blue garage door. I think good I memory. remember. Yeah, good memory. <laughs> and this tiny little team that had built this um, blockbuster community and and app um, was all of a sudden there and 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 when we met i was coming over to be the first kind of communications person at instagram and i'm going to swear because my um my only saying that i had when we first joined was don't fuck it up (laughs) (laughs) but i was like this team has built something that is complete magic and and whatever we do we are going to 
empower it and not F it up. So um, that, you know, I was thinking you have a saying um, and then we're going to get into this. So with a book, like one of the taglines, although communities feel magical, they don't come together by magic. So um, I think that is really powerful because that was, that was like, I think my biggest feeling when we started working together is whatever they have done feels magical. Like how Mm -hmm. do they do it? And what does it mean? So um, why don't we start? We're going to get right into this. But first, we're going to start with my hardest question, which is what did you have for breakfast today? Oh, I love that question. <laughs> so this is going to this is going to be too involved of an answer. No, uh, I had I was just away surfing in North Carolina and South Carolina for the last few weeks. And I came home to my apartment and opened the door and I was like, oh, it stinks in here. And my refrigerator had broken while I was away, which is a disgusting experience. I hope it doesn't happen to anyone who's listening to this podcast. But it's been actually sort of nice for me in a way because um, the the factories have stopped for making refrigerators. So I'm waiting for a new one. It's going to be here tomorrow. But I need to leave my house a lot more than I think I normally would uh, to go get food because I can't keep anything. So this morning, I've been going out to get my coffee and going out to get a smoothie at the bodega down the street. I got a power berry smoothie, which is like, you know, protein, some berries. And it's from this bodega, which I think the name of is hilarious, which is Food You Desire. And the you is is not Y-O-U, it is you. So Food You Desire smoothie, shout out. Uh, Brooklyn and Borum Hill <laughs> on Smith Street. If you're looking for a healthy smoothie, you can get it there at a great price. All right, all right. There we go. Um, so before we get into the community side, I always do like to do a little bit on your journey. Um, I think, you know, we like to talk o- about your journey kind of as, as an athlete, but also just who you were. Like go back to like 11-year-old Bailey mm. and... Um, this is not on the athlete side. It could be or it could not, but like who you were and how did, you know, then you fast forward um, to today and the choices you've made and the, the decisions and how you've gotten to where you are, like were there indications back then that you would be the community builder? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think two words like stick out when I'm defining, trying to remember who I was at 11 or 12 and and there are parts of my nuclear family, I think, that my mom and dad have and they pass to me. But I think about myself as like competitive with myself, like driven and optimistic, almost like naively optimistic. And at the time, I, I played every sport I could growing up. It's the thing that makes me happy. Basketball, volleyball, uh, softball. Uh, my dad was a, a semi-professional barefoot water skier growing up. So I water skied. My uncle surfed Mavericks, so I surfed. My mom was a competitive swimmer, so I swam. Um, you know, it's it's like sports. My my One of my uncles was a collegiate football player. My dad's identical twin was an Olympic bobsledder. It's like just <laughs> sports are all up and down my family. And so I I played a lot of sports and I was also really driven in school too. I just had, my brother is different than me. He's a softer, sweeter, frankly, sweeter person. And I was just this kid that for some reason had this drive that, that I think I have had to dial back 
a little bit just as I age and I want to be like a chiller, happier person. <laughs> um, but sports was good for me for that reason. You know, I really pushed myself and, and it was an outlet for me to kind of put that, that ambition. And, um, and then in terms of optimism and, and sort of naivete, I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in the South Bay near San Jose and Santa Cruz. And my dad is a total naive optimist engineer. Like he just, he believes we're going to solve all the problems the world has. He believes that anything you want to do, you can do, you can figure it out. And I think some of that comes from his ability to build anything he wants. <laughs> He's so handy. He can, he can make anything himself, completely rebuild cars, set up solar panels, you know, build me anything I wanted. And so he has this sort of like optimism about realizing things that are unrealized. And um, then my mom was one of the first female pilots uh, for United Airlines. She started out literally loading luggage at San Jose Airport. She was the first female luggage loader there. Uh, and then she worked her way up to being a pilot and a captain. And I think there's something about like my parents' belief that you can you can like make a future that you want despite adversity that I think I've absorbed. And um, I think some of that like naivete led me to want to work in startups and, and led me to want to work in something. My sort of like drive was like, I want to, I want my hands close to the biggest challenges and the biggest problems. I don't want to maybe work my way up uh, gradually at a company and and then the naivete and optimism, you know, that the Bay Area has around creating a new website, a new product, a new tool, and being able to quickly affect the world with it. Um, I think those two characteristics really led me to go down the path I went down. Um, yeah. I don't know. Does that feel like a good summary? Did I miss any? <laughs> did I miss anything no, else about is, what you asked? Yeah, that's great. And it's <laughs> funny because I was thinking back to, and we won't talk too much about the Instagram days, but like one of the things, um, for me, when we were kind of trying to, I think when I came in, I was more than anything, there was no partnerships, no marketing, you know, I mean, there was, there was a product team, an engineering team and a community team. And, yeah. um, and that for people who aren't familiar with like tech startup land, like the fact that the community team was one of the, the first core teams and like a foundational part of the company is like exceptionally rare. So I came in trying to understand that we, you know, we can talk, we can get into the weeds on it, but like we built like a whole strategy that basically tried to like build from, from that foundation um, to the point that I, and I, I'm trying to remember how old you were at the time, um, but it will get into the like naivete. So, so 25 yeah. years old. So, 25, so here we are like one of the most sophisticated technology companies in the world. And our strategy very quickly was to send Bailey to present to the biggest newsrooms in the world um, as our like lead. It was amazing. Like to explain it all, to like yeah. bring it to life, to like paint the picture. Um, but it wasn't like, it, I think what was so special about it and why you were the person who, who did that was like, and these are all, you know, that this is, I want to talk about the buzzwords around community and authenticity and stuff, but like there's doing it in practice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you had such a deep belief in what you were doing that um, 
the way that you were able to talk about it and bring it to life for people and bring people along was really rare. Um, so props to your parents because that was a, <laughs> a good, good, uh, good combination of ambition and, uh, and belief in yourself. So I'll tell them, I'll send them a copy of this podcast. (laughs) They'll be glad. (laughs) They'll be glad I shouted them out. But I think going, maybe we'll start with that on um, a little bit. And it can be related to Instagram or or separate, but like for people listening, like maybe define in your eyes, like what community is and isn't. um, And then we can kind of build from there. Yeah. I think it's a really important question. Um, especially because I've noticed, so since I left Instagram, I've interviewed hundreds of communities from run clubs, you know, up uptown in New York City to a cloud appreciation society to Twitch streamers with big followings, communities following them. And I noticed in a lot of these conversations that I would have with people over the age of maybe 50 or people who don't work in technology, that actually the word community to those people means their town or their neighborhood. Like it's very physically correlated. And I think part of the reason why we need a definition of community today is that the internet has changed who we can meet and connect with on such a foundational, like really powerful level that the word community has actually like changed, is changing, I think, how we relate to it right now. And our definition of community isn't that much different than I think what you might find in words on the internet from other folks, but I'd like to break it down for people so they really understand the components of a true community. And our definition is it's a community is a group of people who keep coming together over something that they care about. So when I say there's three components to it that I want to break out, one is a group of people. Um, And I think there was a trend out there that may still exist that a lot of businesses in particular, or maybe conferences use the word community for an audience or an entire user base. It's sort of a euphemism, a language kind of bend trick. And we, when we work with companies or with individuals, we try to get them much more specific on their who, who is in their community. It's not a generic euphemism. It's a label for a group of people who are passionate and are active in a cause and a purpose. So a group of people, it's a specific group of people not a euphemism. And then the other two components are that people need to keep coming together. You know, in tech language, that means they're retained. But I would see a lot of people kind of throw a one-off marketing event and call it a community event, but they weren't seeing the same folks continually show up for each other over and over again. And If you're going to have a community, it's okay if you have an audience, it's okay if you have a marketing event, but a community is a a different thing. It's a group of people who show up for each other over and over again. And the final piece is over something they care about. So there's some passion point, some connective tissue that brings, activates all of these people to want to connect with each other. Maybe it's uh, skill development. Maybe it's emotional support. Maybe it's accountability. Uh, Maybe it's fun. 
And that's where some of the magic shows up. And every community has a slightly different, probably or close to slightly different expression of exactly what brings them together. And depending on what that thread is, the nature, the shape of the community will be different. But those are sort of the the three key components of, of what we define as a community versus another kind of group. And the, the final thing I'll say, you, you mentioned this, is that if people don't remember anything else <laughs> that I say on this podcast today, I hope that they remember this this thing that we have learned and that I, I do feel like was in the center of, of the way we worked at Instagram with our early users was you build a community with people, not for them. So that is how you build a community. And it's a progressive act of collaboration. So though you may, as an original host or as a founder, host the first party or make the website or you know do the first posts on a Slack group, your job is to activate and bring as many people into co-ownership of that space as possible to give away roles, to give away responsibilities, and to do more together than you could alone by building with others. And I find that that orientation, historically, at least in businesses, is a bit foreign to people. I think there's a lot of uh, history of businesses seeking control, control of the quality of their product, control of their brand. And this is something we can go into later, but I was so young, I didn't know any different (laughs) at, at Instagram. And we saw all of these young we saw all these passionate users who were raising their hand to help us translate the app to host Instameets who were doing an incredibly thoughtful job with their content. And I sometimes described Instagram as little kids sometimes have these lockets where they break a locket apart and, you know, one little girl best friend gets gets half of the heart and the other little girl best friend gets like half of the heart. And I felt like our company was like, we would just break it into little pieces, our brand, and pass it around and let users speak for us, let the passionate people in the community organize for us, instead of us as one sort of monolithic brand talking at people. And I loved working that way. And the reason I still run people and company, the reason Kevin, Kai, and I are all doing it is because I prefer to work more collaboratively. Maybe it comes from my experience on Teams, but I I prefer empowering people to trying to control them or kind of like funnel them. Um, I love collaborating with passionate people. It makes me feel like alive. And that was something I wanted to learn more about and do more of after I left Instagram. Yeah. And maybe just um, when I think about, so I had spent, by the time I got to Instagram, I'd spent 15 years in communications and marketing and everything was really was set up that you're basically trying to talk at your audience. You're trying to control a message and the way we did things at Instagram and really the model you, it's you and the team had had helped set up was to basically flip it upside down. (laughs) And before you, you know, you even articulated, like not, you know, what you ended up going to write a book about, like doing it with, like when you think about how we launched a product or we went to fashion week or we were at the X games, like we weren't there to announce to people that Instagram's here. This is what we're doing. 
the press you would read was actually about what the Instagram community members were doing at the X Games. At Fashion Week, it wasn't this announcement from Instagram. It was the the community events that had self-organized that took this the front light, right? That um, the things that were happening from the ground up, from the street style artist on the, on the floor at Fashion Week, that became the story. Um, this subtle nuance, but like foundational to, I mean, it completely changed how I thought about things. Hmm. And I'm curious, like, it was funny too, because it was really, when I reflect on it, it was really hard to talk about in Silicon Valley because everything is, I, it's one thing I really, I respected about Kevin and Mike when I first came in is that they pushed, like I was so used to having to present the data on something. Hmm. They were like, we are data informed. We are not data driven. Yeah. And that was, it was a very, like when I would talk about what we were doing, you know, with fashion week, like, I don't know anything about fashion, but we could, we had this amazing community and we could do all these awesome things that other companies couldn't do. And you try to articulate that to the data-driven you know, mindset that exists in the Valley. And it, it sounded like you were talking about fluff, but that fluff was the foundation to what became one of the most, you know, mm. impactful companies of the last decade. Um, so, you know, when you're in talking to, to companies, um, are they, do they get it? <laughs> Great question. There's yeah. a quote that I read that actually Pamela Chen, who I hired and you worked with, uh, Josh and I, Josh Riedel, who I want to mention was, Josh was the first employee hired at Instagram and led the community team. And and we worked so closely with him. And, and much of what happened at Instagram started with, I think, his and Kevin's vision. But we hired Pamela Chen, this amazing Nat Geo journalist, to come take over editorial as we were leaving. And she shared this quote once that was, that I want to say right. Let me like quote myself. Let me mute it so I get it. Not not everything that matters can be measured. You're gonna to have to edit me, Swain. That's okay. Yeah, the phrase that that really stuck with me is not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. And it's like a little bit hard to deconstruct, but yeah, the idea is there are things that are valuable to invest in that you maybe cannot measure super effectively. And not all of your data is actually super insightful. And there's a balancing act there. I, I often think that for core vision, for core principles and for innovation, I don't know that data is is for all companies the right information. I think for iteration and improvements, data is extremely valuable. But data tells you the what, it doesn't tell you the why. And so I think that there's a line there. And I think what Instagram was good at was having quite principled points of view about things that were maybe outside of the purview of data that were more about human psychology. So just to land the community work in that context, in the early days of Instagram, 
people have said that there's a chance that Instagram's launch was the most successful launch of any product in the history of Silicon Valley. And I haven't lived a lot, uh, long enough or paid close enough attention to say if that's true or false. But they immediately took off. Immediately people were using the product when it went public. Some of that has to do with the way that Kevin and Mike did early outreach. And, and some of it has to do with their thoughtfulness of creating a foundation of users on the platform, which we can talk about later. But our job as a community team was to educate new users. The product grew before it was a fully baked product. It was extremely simple in the beginning. And we had all sorts of people joining. And when you're a new user, you don't know what to do. You have to be taught what to do. And we didn't have an unlimited staff of engineers to make the perfect onboarding flow or perfect recommendations for who to follow. And Instagram was so new, if you signed up somewhere like Korea, maybe none of your friends would be on it. And our job as a team was to educate people, new users and possibly existing users, about what was possible on Instagram and what you could do to contribute to that platform in a meaningful, well-received, interesting way. And just to take people back to, you know, 2010, at the time in the US, really what existed was sort of like Twitter and Facebook socially for people. And there was no sense of, I think, artistry on those platforms or creativity on those platforms. Flickr had existed before, but it had already sort of like slowed down. And I often think about launching a new social media platform as almost like launching a new TV channel. And I think about how like MTV was so fresh and so different. You're flicking through all these channels and you land on MTV and it's like, whoa, what is this back in the, the 90s, maybe into the early 2000s? And I think about how in those early days, the content on Instagram was better, like at least in terms of uh, maybe the quality of the photos, the perspectives. On Facebook, it was a lot of people posting, in my experience, like pictures of their friends before they went out to a party in college. And on Instagram, you could see someone's favorite place to eat or an incredible place they'd taken a hike. And there was just fresh, different content. And so our job was to show people other people on the platform that they could maybe mimic, learn from, that could inspire them to understand how to get value out of this platform and how to participate in it. And I think that's the type of thing that we didn't really have very much data anyway <laughs> at that point. But that's the type of thing I'm talking about with this like more principled psychological understanding of, of people and the way we work. With any creative endeavor, humans look at something else someone has done and remix it and make it their own. And that's how we that's how we grow and learn and expand ourselves creatively. And we knew that if we didn't give people those ingredients to see and be inspired by, they would be left in a vacuum. And that kind of insight is an insight that if I maybe share one thing from what we knew at Instagram in the early days was role model, if you're starting a digital space, role model the behavior that you want to see there. Role model with existing users, good content, so that when people show up, they can learn from that and, and replicate it. 
and that's that to me isn't necessarily something that data is going to tell you to do. Um, but it's it's a key insight and one that was absolutely a differentiating factor for Instagram. Yeah, I think to kind of go expand on that, um, and we were talking before the show on um, on you know there's there's a, a tendency to have this feeling that if if you build that they will come and. Yeah. You know, even for me as a, as a new founder building a community around the athletic experience, like we've spent two years trying to build what we think will get the community to come, right? And then and then there's like this very clear and deliberate. You have to take a step outside and look at like who actually did come. Mm. What are they doing? Why mm. are they coming back? Why are they not coming back? Like, and those are two separate modes because how you solve one could actually be picking me picking up the phone. You know, we were talking like a couple times a day and like actually talking to people like and and spurring that, sparking the fire. Um and I mean talk about that because I the big thing for me is like I think all of us, it's like impossible not to you look at a company through your current perception of it or a group or organization or a person and you forget the steps that it probably took to get there. And they didn't all yeah. start with that. They had to start somewhere and they, everyone started with nothing yeah. um, at the beginning. So those early days when you're, you could be a pro athlete building a community with your, your fans or you're starting a company like, like I am, but like, what are the mistakes people make or like, how do you guide people a little bit through, through your work on that? Yeah. I think it's a really important question, a really important insight and I sometimes think, you know, what it takes to build a boat is different than what it takes to get the ship out of the harbor. And that's different than what it takes to like sail the ship at, ship at sea. And knowing what context, what phase of a business you're in and what your most important investments are in that moment is probably in many ways like the great skills of a leader and you know i have my my own critiques of of facebook and of instagram once it got to facebook but i have to say that i do think mark zuckerberg is is one of the best leaders i've seen in terms of getting a company to adjust to the phase of the world that that it's in and to shift itself and do what it needs to do given the current demands um but just to land in i think some of what you're you're talking about. I often see when we work with the the two types of people that come to people and company uh, the most are either big companies that are making a new innovative investment, and it's it's either to supercharge a group of uh, extremely passionate customers or users, or maybe open a new a new investment like a new program or a new digital space, or we get a lot of founders. Uh, who come to us. And I find almost universally people want to talk about the version of their business that is like five years down the line or think on a strategic level of a mature business. And they almost disbelieve that you have to do step one, which is just get the momentum going for a community, which can be on a really small scale. So for example, um, Weight Watchers is one of my favorite stories of a company. Huge. They have, until before COVID, they still were having 30,000 meetings, in-person meetings a week. 
around the world, which is insane. And that started as a test of a meeting with this woman in Queens, Jean Neidich, who was a housewife who had figured out from the New York State Diet Department, a diet program that had actually worked for her when all the others hadn't. And she had a secret meeting with six other people in her apartment in Queens. And that step of sort of coalition building <laughs> eventually led within a few years to this company going public like and global. Um, but sometimes it starts with like literally six people in a room or a medium post or emails. And I interviewed a guy named Cortland Allen for our podcast, Get Together, and he's a, a seasoned founder. And what really struck me about him was his his capacity to do just this, which is to understand what needs to happen at what phase of a business and when to do high touch things and when that makes sense and when to stop doing it. So he started, he went through Y Combinator and realized after founding a venture back company that he didn't want to do that again. He wanted to be independent. He wanted to be free. He wanted to sort of realize the promise of, of that freedom that the internet and an internet built business offers us. And he started to look for inspiration from other independent founders, people who hadn't taken on VC money, and he couldn't find any stories about them. And so he had this sort of meta realization that he was going to build a company for people who are independent entrepreneurs. In the process of trying to figure out how to be an independent entrepreneur, he realized there was a gap there, which is that people need more guidance and more support. And to get this product started, Cortland explains to me that explained to me that he sent out he researched 150 different entrepreneur, independent entrepreneurs, spent like three days without sleeping finding this list of names, and writing them extremely personal, thoughtful emails that were specific to them, recognizing them and asking them to contribute to the community by being interviewed. And now there's 60,000 different independent entrepreneurs in this forum, and once he got the machine going. Cortland automated a lot of it and built systems and processes that allowed a lot of the high-touch elements of writing stories and featuring people and running a forum to, to be low-touch. But he says in those early days, there's no cheat code for personal outreach. There's, there's no cheat code for building momentum. But I sometimes think when we've only worked at scale, we've worked at big companies, or we're talking to investors about the, the future of our company five years down the line, what it's going to become, those small investments, spending three days of our lives writing 150 emails or hosting a meetup for 25 people seems insane, seems, seems like an unsustainable investment compared to where we're trying to go. But if you skip step one, you can't get to step five and you have to do it. So um, that's something that I feel like if you're trying to be a founder who maybe has worked at a big multinational company or uh, worked at a company that already has a big community or a sizable audience, the numbers look so different when you're starting from scratch. But community building is really, Laura Nessler uh, of Duolingo and Yelp says, and I believe this, it's a really like the inversion of the marketing funnel. So instead of starting with a ton of people and moving them through a funnel, you start with a small number of passionate people and you build out from there. Yeah, and one of the things that I've, I think you said this at the beginning, but um, when you're building the community of letting go, and I don't remember the exact words you used, but kind of empowering, giving ownership to the people in the community, like, um, I mean, that's a, 
we, that could be a whole podcast, but how, like finding those, finding those people, recognizing who they are, and then giving up ownership. I think whether you're a early stage founder or you're an established company, those that's also, I mean, it's counterintuitive. It takes work. It's hard, but it's, it could be the game changer. <laughs> um, and without it, like, how do you, you know, it, it's such an amazing way to think about like building something that's real and valuable where it spreads on its own. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, what do you see there is like the, maybe some tips on how to approach that, like recognizing who these, who, who people are and then, and maybe some ways that um, you've seen different people approach kind of that leap to give some ownership and control to the community. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the three steps, if you have maybe a sense of people in your space that are emotionally engaged and share a purpose with your company, with uh, your personality, with a purpose that you have. There are really like three steps, I think, that you do from this point of, I have some kindling to a fire and I want to put some structure around it so that I might be able to expand this group of passionate people to even more folks. And those three steps are pinpointing your hand raisers, the most passionate people, vetting them, and then supercharging them. So uh, in each of those steps, there's complexity to sort of like doing that depending on exactly what your community looks like. But in the pinpointing space, what you're looking for is you're looking for people who are what we say is genuine and qualified. So depending on what you want their help with, whether it's opening a chapter community or maybe being someone you feature on your podcast or blog, uh, you want to make sure that they are both sincerely passionate about the purpose that your community is pushing forward. Uh, is it about, say, someone we might choose to feature on the Instagram blog or on our, our handle? We would try to see if people, could, based on what we could tell, were just out to get more followers or if they, in fact, were passionate about meeting new people and, and connecting with other human beings. I would actually crawl through Instagram, look for interesting photographers, interesting Instagrammers, and see if they had replied to people who left comments on their photos before I would feature them or put them on suggested users. So just kind of checking them, you know, are they genuine? Why are they here? What is it they want to get out of it? And does it align with what we're trying to do as a company or as an individual? And then you also want to just check, are they qualified? So, you know, for someone who maybe is opening a chapter community, we spoke to a woman who started something called Queer Soup Night, and it's a, a very simple format. A, a queer cook creates a soup, they throw a party, there's suggested donations, and all the money gets funneled to a local activism group. And they were just based in New York for a long time. And when they started opening up new chapters, they realized that they needed people who had a background in cooking, one person who had a network of cooks and an experience with cooking, and one person as a chapter lead who had an experience with putting on parties and events. And those were the qualifications that they needed for someone who was going to be a leader in their community. And so there's a desire to find those people who are passionate and who are qualified. 
vet them for those factors. And then from there, you try to supercharge the efforts that they're working towards. So say, um, say you're, we're going back to this chapter example with Queer Soup Night, those people who are opening up chapters maybe need help marketing their events or maybe need help hosting those events. And the person who was the original leader at headquarters here in New York, her job, Liz, has really transformed into trying to figure out different assets, tools, structure, training that she can offer to her chapter hosts instead of focusing so much on her as an individual leader here in New York. Um, Another example of supercharging your leaders might be if it's less of a chapter organization, maybe it's making an ambassador role. Uh, We had suggested users at Instagram. There were also, you know, like eBay in the early days, they brought on community members who were excellent at selling and really successful at selling and wanted to share that knowledge with other eBay folks and kind of maybe even build a platform and they would supercharge those people. Some of them would have podcasts or be featured at meetups. And so thinking about how you can amplify and augment the work that these people do, make it easier for them to do the hard parts and make their their core work even more impactful through sort of a problem-solving assessment is, is what you need to do. So finding those people, vetting them, and then supercharging them. And if you can do that in a structure that's scalable, you can begin to reach tons more people than you ever could as maybe a small startup team at, at headquarters. And, and that's what we saw at Instagram was, you know, in the early days, we were 12 people in San Francisco, 12 almost all white, like almost all under the age of 30 San Franciscans. And we knew that we needed to make people into leaders in other countries and other places where people were using Instagram and an interest that we didn't have because there was a level of authenticity and specificity that someone in Japan who's really into coffee could have speaking to other people in Japan who are into coffee than we could ever have or even know about if we're just sitting as a small team trying to do all the communication or trying to do all the leadership ourselves. Um, So it it can be a really powerful strategy to scale energy and scale momentum if instead of as a headquarters, you say, how do I do this all myself? You say, how can I work with people to do this for even more people? Um, This sounds like a a tactical question. In some ways it is, but... um... I think like as, as a founder myself, so the, when you look at the tools that you have to do this, it can get really overwhelming. Like Instagram had its own product, right. Where it could like, um, but you know, you, you've talked about email. There's like the, you know, the, now that we're in the COVID situation, like the real life gatherings have gotten hard. Um, there's people you know who start like a Facebook group and it as like the place where it, where it forms, um, you know, if you're, you're trying to do this and you're looking at all the avenues and you're kind of stressed out by them (laughs) of like, where do I start? And I don't know, this is like the magic question, but like, if you don't have your own platform, um, and you're starting from scratch, like what, what do you focus on? Like, where do you go? Like what tools are, are working? Um, yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. There's a, a lot in there. And I think, yeah, you know, one of, 
I think one of the questions that I realized, one of the challenges of community building that I realized was so much easier for me at Instagram because we owned the platform um, was just identifying passionate people. So, you know, if you don't have signals built into your software, data signals that allow you to identify who is engaged, who's showing up over and over again, and who's really passionate here, uh, it's hard to, or if you can't even just navigate your platform with search or kind of a backend way of finagling through the platform, it can be hard to do this work. And I had to get scrappy. We had to get scrappy at Instagram in the early days. You know, I I would use API partners like GramFeed at the time, which is gone, I'm sure. But I would use web-based versions of Instagram that had been built by an API partner to literally crawl through Instagram users. And when we were going to launch in Korea or launch Android, I knew that there might be growth in Korea and I would spend hours trying to find people who were already on Instagram in Korea that we could feature as suggested users for Korean language, future new users to see when they sign up for the app when we get Android. And I did it in a pretty scrappy way. Like I went to other platforms and where my community, where our community spent their time that I could actually navigate and and looked for passionate people. And I think today the reality is that oftentimes there's not just one platform for any community anyway. You know, there might be, for Notion, for example, they have a bunch of people who are super passionate about their product and they run a very small Slack group for a vetted set of ambassadors But the community also started their own Facebook pages and their own Reddit pages and all of these different platforms. And so I think it takes some amount of like creativity and uh, scrappiness, curiosity, scrappiness to just dig in and find passionate people. And and if you can't found that on on that, just um, like the getting started part, like you're looking everywhere where your community is and what they're doing. You're trying to pull those, really build that understanding if you don't kind of have your own platform. And then have you found that people generally have more success by making like a single bet at the beginning, right? Like starting one Facebook group, focusing on some sort of Slack channel. Um, Or is it trying a whole bunch of things and seeing what works? Yeah. <laughs> there's not a single answer to that, but yeah, there's probably not. I maybe I'll just say my preference, which is I yeah. think I think people get really overwhelmed by the number of places that you communicate with them. And if you are firing signals off as a small company in like 10 different spaces, you're probably stretched too thin to do any of that really well. And I think if you are a small company or you're starting with a small community, having a focused specific place to speak to them, I think is is kind of an act of generosity and a guarantee that there will be some level of quality there. And so I encourage people to to sort of like cut away 
the places that maybe you don't have to be, depending on what your community cares about. So I don't know, for the pro community, I would imagine there's a reasonably visual bent to some of these athletes. Maybe not, um, but maybe Twitter isn't that important or Slack isn't that important to a community where they're outdoors, they're running through beautiful spaces, they're sharing maybe maybe Strava and Instagram. It's like, okay, maybe those two. But I think if you try to do everything, none of it will be that good. And you may not be able to really build bonds between the members of the community because they'll be scattered all over the place. So I think there are people out there who might be listening to this and be like, that's baloney. I did it. I tried 10 different places. One of them caught steam and it was a surprise to me and it wouldn't have never occurred to me to guess this in advance. But I think you have to, with everything, navigate a, a combination of like, what do we think is our best, what, what is the best strategic approach and also how many resources do we have? And in the early days, I think trying to, if you're trying to build some watering hole for community members to talk to each other, focusing on a smaller number of people, actually making sure they know each other and they can kind of get the party started means like keeping them in one room instead of having like 10 parties, 10 rooms for the same party with like three people in each of them or this like scattered, scattered um, sort of constituency. So I, I think I I really think having a space where you know you can communicate with your community members and that that's where they come to to hear from you and it's focused is the strategy that I, I prefer because I saw it work really well, but there might be exceptions to that. Yeah, that like, what was it? We had that do fewer things better. Yeah, exactly. And, then, and I think- and then, Yeah, Antonow's- yeah. um, who ran marketing at Instagram that do less that we put on coffee cups. <laughs> um, He's so that, great. I mean, but it's, it's the hardest thing in, in life and business and anything is like to do, yeah. to pick a few things and to do them really well. Um, and yeah. yeah, there was a quote to that... your point, it takes such a deep understanding of your purpose and your, what you're trying to do um, to, Really, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to to do the fewer things better. Um, yeah, it's easy to scatter yourself thin. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know I've heard strategies defined as what you say no to. And Kevin uh, Sistrom, who started Instagram, he would always say this quote that I think was attributed to Mark Twain, which was, "I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time." And right. it all points in the same direction, you know, but. The things that you choose to cut, those decisions may be some of the most powerful decisions you make, especially when you're a small company and you have limited resources. If you can only do so many things well, are you making the right bets around where you put your time and where you put your focus? Um, and and I think, you know, in general, a lot of the people that were attracted to Instagram in the early days, I think they appreciated the thoughtfulness of the design as well. Like the app worked really well. It was really simple. And it was in sort of our brand to, to not spam people, to not over communicate with them, to not beg them for things. And I think that that unlocked some of the passion for the product was just the thoughtfulness with which we treated our users in communication and also in the product design. Um, and 
And I think that kind of keeping things simple was in line with with who we were and the early users that we wanted to bring in. And there might be there might be different worlds where that doesn't align with those early users or the way to communicate with them. But that that was how we approached these sort of like design forward creative creative people was to keep it simple and keep it very thoughtful. On the ambassador part you mentioned, um, there's probably some people listening who either are ambassadors for companies or companies who are building ambassador programs. Um, Anything that you've seen or thoughts from just watching what's happening on whether you are an ambassador and you're looking to, to really be helpful to a company? into the community and to, to help build it, or you're helping to put something like that in place of, um, same thing, like where can it go wrong? Where can it go? Right. Yeah. It's a great question. And I've done some work with Nike around this and Hurley around this and also researched Lululemon's approach, but I've never been, a sponsored athlete or an ambassador myself. So I, I want to be really, I want to acknowledge that I know there's a lot of complexity in every different personal relationship that an athlete has with the brand. But I think there's a lot that I see is is missed in terms of people at companies and also maybe the athletes themselves having passion points and those passion points uh, really being like recognized and and supercharged. And I think that that's, this sounds a little abstract, but I'll I'll tell a story. Um, At Hurley, I got to work on a project with their, their head of influencer marketing and, and we were thinking about their surf clubs. So they invested in, and people learning how to surf and gathering in local communities to, to do that. And they had, you know, a whole roster of different people at all different types of levels of sponsored athletes and, you know, in the Hurley family, people that were low profile, you know, not getting like giant payments from Hurley, people that were just sort of influencers who got got swag and things like that in their relationship with Hurley. And then, you know, the John John Florences and the Carissa Moores, who are the, the best male and female surfer in the world and, and are on big, big salaries or big tickets with them. And there was this one guy who clearly stood out to the Hurley team as just like a special person. He was really engaged in his community. He lived nearby Huntington Beach. His name's Brett Simpson. He used to be on the the WSL. I don't know if he still is. But he just was passionate about other people surfing and his community and investing in the community. And Hurley ended up in response to that, rolling out this sort of core program where every Friday morning for the local Huntington Beach surf kids um, in the Huntington Beach community, Brett Simpson and some of the Hurley guys would throw a Friday morning Dawn Patrol surf. And they did it. They stuck with it. It was like every month or every week. And I thought that that was one of the coolest community building kind of investments that they did in our time with them. And it was really born out of the fact that they knew that Brett was truly passionate about his community and wanted to teach kids and and be involved in that way. And they created this 
this sort of shared activity for the people in Huntington Beach that was pretty simple in format. Like it wasn't a big event. It was just a surf together that, you know, Hurley would hand out t-shirts or bring a van or something, but they could easily do it every Friday morning with Brett. And I think to me, there's a lot of value, I think, as an athlete for you whether it's in your current relationships with this a specific brand or the direction you're looking to go into to create what I call like a shared activity. You know, is there something that you and the people who care about your sport or your perspective on the sport can come together to do? Whether it's like a challenge or a shared activity in terms of like a physical activity at the same time, at the same day of the week, even at a distance. But that allows, instead of just this, I, you post on Instagram, people comment on and off, like these sort of just like uh, t- t- like asynchronous relationships with people. It allows you to bring your whole community or your audience together around a focused moment. And I think that that stuff is, is really interesting and really powerful. And there's a lot of people with big audiences out there today, but not a lot of people that are really connected to their audience or have a necessarily super engaged audience. And so I think if you as an athlete can figure out a way to actually like bring your community together and connect them to each other and and have a more engaged following than other people, that can be a real competitive advantage. Um, like Brett Simpson is not a super well-known person in the surf world, but because he was passionate and because he was wanted to give back and showed up for this shared activity and and sort of sparked it with Hurley, he got an outsized investment and an outsized platform with the company. So yeah, so I think making sure that that your sponsors know what your passion points are. Is it is it your local community? Is it like like Questlove loves food and does all these food partnerships? He's not an athlete, he's a musician, but is there some dimension of your personality or your passion points that you're willing to get people together over and and I think brands really do like those slices and like that specificity. Um, and, and it's a way for you to possibly go a little deeper with your audience. Yeah, I think and there's this, I mean, all of this points back to like um, the people in the community, like doing the work, right. And putting themselves out there. Like mm. we had a few people early on pro kit who, who they were, pregnant female elite athletes who noticed that no one was documenting their journey. They were struggling with how do you find information for people like them? How do you find mm-hmm. community for people who have gone through what they're going through? Um, one of the, Laura King on our, on our site wrote this post called pregnancy and the athlete. And it was just a post at the beginning of like what she had learned, the research she had done, how she had come to conclusions about, um, about how much and what type of exercise to do while she was pregnant. She called out the people in the community who had helped her with that research. And, you know, now a year later, there's like this community of pregnant female athletes going yeah. through it together and knowing each other in real life. Like, but it all took one person putting herself out there, writing about yeah. it. Um, and that's a big topic. That's like those same athletes on Instagram could just be posting about their rides. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you take a couple hours to, to put a post down on something that, that you care about that maybe is going to help others like you in the community and the community starts from, from that act. Um, it's, yeah. It's and a, I think that point is crucial of, 
I remember we did we did some research on run clubs and the the thing that everybody says when they're starting a community from scratch that scares them the most is that people aren't going to show up like I'm going to host this thing and like no one's going to come and I remember talking to this guy uh, in Chicago about you know would he be interested in in starting his own run club and and what would keep him from doing that and he said you know well I'd be worried no one's going to show up to this activity that I host. And then he's like, but you know what? I like running anyway. So if no one shows up, I'll still go for my run and I'll be happy I did it. And I think it's good for people to start from a personal place, from a place that they have enthusiasm and energy for and, you know, host a shared activity or write a post that they care about and start there because you want it to be something that you want to keep doing. That's not like a drag for you to do that you actually like are stoked to keep hosting, you know, group conversations with pregnant women or like publishing the voices of your community about pregnancy or um, hosting, you know, Brett Simpson hosting his Friday morning surf club. It's like it gives them energy to keep doing this because, you know, athletes have a lot on their table. They're physically tired. You know, it's it's not a simple life to be training and to be like a media or entertainment public figure. So thinking about something that you actually want to do because you give a damn about it and then just thinking, oh, maybe I'll host the first couple or I'll do the first of these. But then what if I if I start empowering other people to do what I was doing and I don't have to be the center, I don't have to be the bottleneck. That's that's the switch that I think people should take is, is go somewhere personal, do something you actually care about, and then just think about how you can enable other passionate people to take the reins from you. Mm. Um, for people who are, who maybe already have a community and are struggling, you know, they're not at the building phase, but they're, they're in the, how do you keep it, mm. keep the spark and everyone has zoom fatigue and yeah. maybe their community involved real life interaction yeah, <laughs> like many do. And, you know, what, what are you seeing out there for creative ways that keep it going, but recognizing kind of. To your point on Mark, and I totally agree with it on the Facebook side of like being able to literally switch the direction of the company to map mm. to the current direction of society. Yeah. <laughs> like I've, you know, very in the, at a scale that is like unprecedented um, with major trade-offs. And I think we're at that same moment, you know, we're, you know, this, we're several months into a completely new reality. We don't know when it's going to go back, um, and what going back looks like. So, um, and I think community, like your definition at the beginning about like, you know, people over a certain age, like community just means the people in your neighborhood. Um, yeah. I think everybody right now is, is hoping for some more interaction. So, you know, what are you seeing any anything innovative or kind of shifts that yeah. you're paying attention to? Yeah. I mean, the number one thing I want to acknowledge here is like before I go into things I've seen is like it sucks. Like this sucks. Totally. I, yes. <laughs> it super sucks. Like I right. uh I am a the type of person that sees technology. I like technology not because it makes a different world, but because it makes my lived experience of the world better. And it sucks that we can't, I love playing basketball. I can't play basketball with my communities here anymore. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. 
And that sucks. And there's some people that just prefer to do things in life, in real life with other people. I think athletes, probably a lot of them are in that category. And there's not a like hack that can make this the world what it was in January. So I want to acknowledge like there's something that has been lost and that that sucks. And in terms of like, well, okay, it sucks. What can we do? What can we do now? Um, the, the first thing I, I suggest people do before I share like in some inspiring examples is, is when we go in and we do a, a workshop with clients or organizations or coach people, we have them answer people who are in, in the beginning of starting a community, three questions. Who are you bringing together? Why will they come together? And what will they do together? And they're deceptively simple questions, but really getting answers that resonate is and having cognitive clarity about those three questions is how to get a community going. And, and right now, what I think a lot of people need to do is to revisit this question of why. Why does their community come together? So I, I played some soccer here in New York uh, with this team called Dyke Soccer. And I'm a queer woman, so I feel like I get to say that word, but um, it's like all, all gay women and uh, non-identifying people who come together and play soccer. And we're, some of us are good. Some of us are like very mediocre. And before, you know, the purpose of the community, the why was like people came together, maybe like for accountability for working out or to, to play soccer, to do a shared activity, to do a hobby. And they took like some of those essence of like coming together for this fun and coming together for like maybe some emotional support in the queer community. And they said, you know, how can we do that? That why in today's world? And I loved how creative they got with their activities, which was like they have established um, a mutual aid network within within the soccer team. So kind of the sense of like queer support continues of people looking out for each other. They brought on a player who was a licensed therapist to like offer free therapy to people in the community. But my favorite thing that they did was pet parades on Zoom. So if you had a cat or a dog, like instead of like chatting to each other on Zoom, you could bring your pet like onto the camera and it was like a pet parade. And I think it really tapped into this like emotional support and joy that the team offers people. But I think for some communities, the why has possibly shifted. So, you know, people that used to come together to like skill develop around cooking or around uh, their ability to give public speeches or around their maybe like timed miles, um, maybe some of that has shifted given the state of the world and people's emotional state. And, and it's your job to just make sure, okay, why are my people coming together and is there anything I can do right now to serve that why? Um, in terms of innovative things I've seen people do, one of my favorites is there's this community called Girl Trek uh, that was started by two young Black women who were both public school teachers. And if you look at the the like sort of CDC data for Black women's health, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but... I think within the next 10 years, more than 50% of young Black women will be obese. And they a lot of the public health numbers for Black women, children and adults, are some of the worst of any demographic in the country. And these two public school teachers decided a, a few years ago, I'm just going to do something about this on a local level. And I'm going to take my girls 
to go for a walk three times a week, 30 minutes, three times a week. That's what the CDC recommends. We're just going to do it. I'm going to take the girls in my class and that's it. And then they, this teacher decided, well, why don't we bring their moms with them? Well, we'll all go together. And the mom started showing up. And people were so inspired by this giant group of black women walking through the streets of Baltimore that other folks raised their hands and opened chapters. And now there are thousands of chapter leads of Girl Trek chapters that it's black women out in space walking together. And before the pandemic, they would walk all together in cities and in towns every Saturday morning and come together once a year to walk historical parts of the civil rights our civil rights history. So they did the walk from um, Montgomery to Selma and also walked the Underground Railroad. And obviously it's not a great idea to have groups of people walking together now. And what the founders did was they created a podcast and people who are a part of Girl Trek listen to these podcast episodes that are a series of the founders of Girl Trek telling the story of and interviewing historical Black women. Um, so they've had like Angela Davis on the podcast, or they've told the story of Harriet Tubman. And I've listened to it, and it's pretty fun because the women are walking as they're recording themselves <laughs> for telling this podcast. And so it, it kind of recreates through digital tools the experience of like a, a sense of unity, a sense of collectiveness with other Black women and exercise, like going for this walk. Um, so I, I really appreciate that yeah. of, of really saying, yeah, can I take the fundamentals and Band-Aid this situation? Yeah. Um, on the, you know, so for, for ProKit and I would say much of the outdoor industry, it's notoriously white um, not great on diversity. And I think many companies, ours included, even though we're tiny, are trying to commit to being better, to elevating voices that haven't been elevated, to spotlighting them, to finding them. And in some ways, like it's almost bringing communities together that weren't together. So for companies out there that are really struggling with like, they took a deep look at who is in their community and they're like, okay, this is, this is great, but we're missing pieces that should be represented and should be part of it. Um, any, like, I'm sure you've seen a lot of people struggling with that and committed to it, but like the, how do you, how do you take those steps to bring new people in? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a really great question. I'm glad you asked it. And one thing that I've learned, I, I'm a white person and there's so much that I have to learn. And I've learned so much in the last you know, few months and certainly just the last few years. But in, in researching communities, one thing that really stood out to me is people join a community both for the thing that the community does and the people that they see doing that thing. And uh, an example of that is, you know, I joined a specific basketball team in New York because I wanted to play basketball with other women. And also because based on their photos on Instagram, they looked like people I might want to be friends with. It's like a lot of artsy people playing basketball. I was like, I think that's, that's the group I want to play with. And I interviewed this group called the dinner party, which 
started as one dinner party between a group of girls who were all close friends who all realized they had lost a parent or a sibling way too young in life. And they started out just doing this single table and they hand curate tables now all around the country. There are like 2,000 tables. There are more than 50 in New York alone. And these tables meet every couple of months and people get together who have all lost someone too early in life to talk about their current experience of grief. And the headquarters team sifts through all these applications of people who want one of those tables in their lives and and hand curate these tables. So they'll like find the 10 people and put them together. And they said one thing that they realized is if they put only one person of color at a table of all white people, the likelihood of that person coming back is extremely low. And similar for people in sort of like non-traditional gender uh, identities, um, and I'm sure other other more marginalized groups. And so I think, you know, if you're just starting a community or you're in the early days of it, I think as soon as possible, think about how you can make people leaders or take on roles or take on visibility within your community that don't that don't look like you <laughs> if you want a diverse community. And also like make that very clear. Um, I even have seen people who are community leaders say very explicitly, like, we are a Black Lives Matter community. And if you are not on board with that, that that is cool, <laughs> like, but you don't need to be here. Um, and so I think kind of really clearly communicating through a demonstration of who is in your community and and who is welcome and and what the rules are is is important. If you've gone a long way down a path and you are realizing now, holy shit, my community is is very white or very homogenous in some way. I, I think you know start start with baby steps. Start with with figuring out are there partners that you could do an event with? Is there a way that you can show up for the the for other racial groups for specifically Black people in the United States that you know offer some kind of resources or audience or support to a group that's already in that space? So, for example. There's a lot of different groups that are like Black Girls Run or um, Black Girls Climb or Black Girls Surf. Like all these different entities are popping up in, I think, traditionally pretty white sports. And I would see like, you know, is there a way that we can support them, spotlight them or possibly collaborate with them? But there are people out there that are doing this work. And I think the best way to show up if you feel like you're late to the game is to see if there's some resource or way you can be generous with those people or partner with them and supercharge them instead of just kind of thinking about how um, you might be able to like solve your diversity problem, like go out there and build relationships right. and be generous with people and demonstrate that that's where, you know, with your action, that that's what you care about and what you want to do more of. Very well said. I need that. I'm going to have to listen to this episode again to take notes, <laughs> which I can't do when I'm interviewing. Um, so it, it, and I would encourage everybody to get the get together the book, because one of the things that's so cool about it is it's really, it's like the toolkit playbook. Um, and it's like experiential, which is not surprising after hearing Bailey. Um, it, you know, it kind of gives you your homework and, and your thought starter. So, um, it was really helpful for me and, um, and really just a good reminder of all the things that the magic we got to work together on a few years ago. Um, yeah. 
And where can people find you on the interwebs? Oof. Uh, I think weirdly, you know, I deleted my Instagram account in like this moment of like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't just a moment, but kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to graduate. I like have spent enough time on this platform. It's time for something else. So I found that I just like put a lot of my time into Twitter now. I just like didn't, I didn't stop spending time online. I just put more time onto Twitter. So you can find me at Bailey Elaine on Twitter. Also, I have a public website and you can email us like through our, our work website, peopleand.company, people-and.company, um, or I'm baileyerichardson.com. So you can find me through all of that. Um, yeah. And, and Swain, it's, I, it's, it's so fun to talk to you. I wish that I could like interview you for your own podcast so people could hear all go. the amazing things you've you've done and the ways that I look up to you and questions I want to ask you, but, uh, it's, it's, I've always appreciated the dynamic that I have with you. So thank you for having me. Thank you. We will have to go surfing together. We've never done that. And you can yeah. teach me some of what you know. I'm going tomorrow morning. If you want to fly out to New, New, York, New, New York and surf really <laughs> mediocre waves. New York doesn't out. let us California's in there. <laughs> oh God. Not oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> Although oh, no. I'm, I am, I am pro safety. So um. yeah, I feel like a lot of Californians are like, well, yes. we don't really need to go there anyways. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. And we will see you in the water. Thanks. Wade. I hope. All right. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.